Today we are at the end of the book of Hebrews. And being at the end of this book um, brings up a lot of thoughts and feelings for me as the preacher. I think the first thought that I had was that it has been a long haul. And if it has been a long haul for me, I can't imagine how long of a haul it has been for you. This book is a beautiful sermon, a powerful word from God, but a challenge to be able to interpret and to understand some of the nuances that the preacher of Hebrews speaks to us as he uh, spoke it to his congregation, those who had been gathered to hear the reading of this word. So, as I thought about the long haul, I immediately thought of uh, Forrest Gump. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Uh, If you did, uh, you may remember that after his mother died, he went running. And he ran for quite a while. You might say it was for a long time. And uh, so I asked Mary to... Uh, play the clip. We can't get the visual, but you'll be able to hear it. Uh, so take a listen to uh, to this little section of Forrest Gump. My mom always said, you got to put the past behind you before you can move on. And I think that's what my running was all about. I had run for three years, two months, 14 days and 16 hours. I'm pretty tired now. I think I'll go home. And just like that, my running days was over. My mama always said you have to put the past behind you before you can move on. And I think that was what my running was all about. I think that this provides some insight for us as we have been looking at this book of Hebrews. I think there's some things from the past, especially the past couple of years, that we need to put behind us if we're going to truly move forward into the future of being the church. He said, I'd run for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. I'm pretty tired now. Well, it may have felt like three years (laughs) and two months, but actually we began this series on July 11th of this year. And after 16 weeks, we have heard 16 sermons on the book of Hebrews. And some of you are still asking me, why did you do this? (laughs) And I don't really have a good answer for you, other than I really sense God telling me to preach this book. And I think I've shared with you earlier, in the weeks prior to this, that what I began to realize was that maybe it wasn't so much for you as it was for me. Because what, what I've been learning is that 
that what we are experiencing in the church today is probably not a lot. It, it is different, but it's not completely different from what they were experiencing in the early church. And there's some things that, that we have to move past, we have to put behind us in order for us to be able to move forward. The potential of this book having an impact could be great, but it could, it could have also flopped. I remember being warned by friends, members of the church, that I should be careful because this is a compl complicated book and that if we were going to focus on it this year that w we probably were going to lose some visitors and you know that would come in here and hear this complex focus on the book of Hebrews um, but not only that but we, we probably lost some members over it as well but I think like I said I think Forrest Gump has some insight for me you know, we've had quite a past two years, a global virus and a global pandemic, political divisions. Um, uh, we must put some of this behind us if we want to be moving forward again as the church, as the body of Christ. We need to learn to go to people, to relate to people, to be with people. You see, that's part of what this book has been teaching us, is that we need to move beyond the old model of the church, which was where people would just come to us. We would try to be as attractive as possible to gather as many people as possible. But that's not what our call is today. Our call is for us to gather, to be strengthened, but then to go outside the camp, as the preacher says in our word for today. We need to learn to go to the people. It's a, it's a lesson in keeping our focus on Jesus, on keeping our focus on his great sacrifice, keeping our focus on his role as, as the great high priest, this means that we need to learn to live outside the camp. For this world is not our permanent home. The preacher begins by addressing some pastoral issues for the early church. And they're not that different from the pastoral issues that we face or that other churches face. And so the first issue that he raises in this conclusion is about hospitality. Now we often think of hospitality as coffee and treats after worship. We haven't had that for a year and a half now. But what the preacher here is telling us is that hospitality is, is something much deeper than that. Hospitality that the preacher is talking about here is one that, that definitely shows mutual love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the stuff that we got to get behind. We have to learn to love one another even in the midst of our differences. 
Mutual love means loving one another, even when we don't always agree with each other. That used to be not that difficult. So as we are called to love mutually, that is hospitality. But we are called to love even beyond that. What the preacher is telling us is, in addition to showing mutual love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that it's also important for us to be able to make a place at the table for the stranger. We need to be able to listen to God as God shows us opportunities to make available space at our table for the stranger. That's part of the reason why the refugee ministry strikes my heart. I mean, not only did many of these people serve us, but also we are called to serve them. That's mutual hospitality for the stranger. Our refugee ministry focus, our goal has been to raise $5,000. And I think uh, we have raised $3,500. That includes the $1,000 that you contributed for refugee ministries in September. And um, we have some other monies that, that we will be able to put towards it. But so far, we're at $3,500. And I think that that's important. The coalition of four churches thus far, there was one um, lead grant of $15,000. And so at this point so far, the the four churches have raised $26,500. That is a way that we can offer hospitality to strangers. To create a place at our table for them. But not only that, we are reminded of why this is so important. The preacher references the story of Abraham and Sarah. And I don't know if you remember that. It's from Genesis 18. But these three strangers walk into Abraham and Sarah's camp. And Abraham immediately responds and has them sit down. They are welcome guests. Even though they're strangers, they have no idea who these people are. They have come from a faraway place. They are being welcomed by Abraham and by Sarah. Abraham tells Sarah, go make some bread, for a loaf for each one. He goes out and he butchers one of the livestock to offer it in a meal. And they will provide a place for these weary travelers to rest. And then we get the next part of the story. And that is where they are being told by the Lord God that Sarah is going to have a baby. The messengers bring this news. But it is from the Lord God. And, you know, when, when Sarah hears it, overhears it, she's in the tent preparing the, the food, when she overhears the promise, she begins to laugh because she's an old woman. She's barren. And she said, even if I could have a child, Abraham, he's really old. (laughs) 
And so, so they're, they're filled with doubt. And the Lord tells Abraham and Sarah that what he has spoken through these strangers is true. And so we have this image that these three strangers who have stopped by are actually not strangers. They are three angels. And so when you entertain with hospitality the stranger, the preacher is reminding us that you may be entertaining an angel. So why would you want to lose that opportunity? But the hospitality that the preacher is dealing with continues to drive even deeper. Because what it is said here, it's translated kind of strangely. And it's, it's a word that can be translated in a couple of different ways. Most translations translated, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? But the other word that can be used, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Hard work can bring wonderful results. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Are we willing to experience that? Hospitality is not a chore. It is a gift. That's why the preacher begins with this. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. The second pastoral issue is that the church is to care for those in prison, those who are being abused, those who are being persecuted. And there was a lot of persecution and imprisonment going on. Uh, Some of the early Christians were actually experiencing this firsthand. And some probably from within that congregation. First century prisons were not like our prisons today. For them, nothing was provided that we provide in our prisons. If you go to our prison system, you get clothing, you get food, you get water, you get basic medical care, you get recreational time, you have a bathroom, you have all these things that are basic human needs that we have said are required even in prison. Prisons in the first century were not like that. They were holding cells. And they were being, people were being held in those holding cells uh, either before a trial or else prior to an execution. These prisons were dark, damp, unclean, often rat-infested. They were uh, disease-infected. And while you were there, you most likely experienced beatings, chains, whips, torture. If you had food and drink and clothing to wear, it was, become, it was because a family member or because um, friends brought it to you. And it wasn't like 
you brought them a gift card that they could go to the refectory and pick up their food every day. No, it was like you had to bring it that day for that day. And so a prison visit wasn't once a week or once a month. If you were truly visiting the prisoner, you were visiting them every day to bring them food and water, clothing, clean clothing, being able to pray with them, to encourage them. It puts a different perspective on it when you think about, you know, Peter and Paul, for example, being held in prison. That they were being held prior to their trials and then prior to their executions. The modern prison system that we have today really didn't happen until about the 18th century. It was an enlightenment realization. Well, maybe we should treat prisoners a little bit better. Many of the early Christians were in prison for not joining the synchronistic worship of the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, it was like uh, they had adopted uh, Greco-Roman worship. And um, there was some tangents built off of that, um, often referred to as pagan worship because uh, pagan doesn't mean that they didn't worship anything. It meant that they worshipped everything. And so the Romans were pagans in the sense that they, they had uh, many gods and goddesses that they were worshipping. And um, if you brought a new one and it got adopted, the more the merrier. And in that, um, the Christians, the Jews and the Christians became problematic because we insisted on worshiping one God and one God alone. And so they said that the Christians weren't playing nice and they got thrown into prison, the leaders. As a matter of fact, that is most likely the reason for Paul and Peter's executions. So this persecution and imprisonment was something that was real for that early church. And the preacher reminds them that even though that is happening, that they are called to treat their brothers and sisters in prison with compassion. That's when he tells them in verse 3, um, remember those in prison as if you, there were, if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. That is a call for us to be compassionate. That is a, it's not just, you know, sending some money, some food, some clothing. It is that we empathize with those who suffer. And then the preacher raises a third pastoral issue. This is about the marriage bed and money. So um, I learned in one of my visits this summer uh, from a preacher that I, that I went to church and listened to um, that he said sometimes he preaches and sometimes he meddles. <laughs> and so I'm going to do some meddling here. <laughs> And you might wonder, well, what's the difference? Well, the preaching is when I can kind of share the information, 
give you insight, open up the scriptures for you. Maybe it can uh, touch your heart in a way. The meddling is where it gets personal. <laughs> and it may impact something that you are dealing with. And so just a fair warning for you all that at this point I am not preaching, I am meddling. The church can be ruined by hatred, by apathy, by neglect. I mean, we see that happening around the country, around the world really, right? So it's not hard to understand that the church can be divided by that. But what's interesting is that, and surprising perhaps, is the church can also be destroyed by love, <laughs> by inappropriate love. When we love someone other than whom we have committed our life to, we, we love wrongly. And not only can we love the wrong person, we can also love the wrong things, like money. The preacher says that when we love these things, inappropriate love for sex, for money, for things, when we love these things, we are denying, this is what he says, we are denying the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. So what, what we're saying is that, well, I know Jesus died for my sins, um, but I don't really believe it because I'm not going to allow it to transfer my life. I want to hold on to some of the things of my past. And so I'm, I'm going to, to, to deny that Jesus' um, sacrifice, his redemption upon the cross, was also actually my sanctification. It's an interesting argument that he makes there. The preacher says that when we love things, like the love of money, that it's not only about greed. I mean, isn't that where our minds probably go? You know, the, the reason we love money is because we become greedy. But what he tells us is that underneath the love of money, really, is the fear of abandonment. And so we're afraid of being abandoned, and so we hold on to the love of money. He shares some scripture that highlights that for us. And so what he tells us is, he reminds us that God will never leave us. God will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. And that we need not be afraid of our futures. In Psalm 118 is where the preacher highlights some of this. We read from verses 5 for a few verses here. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. You see, that is what we believe as Christians is that Jesus has set us free, right? He's answered our prayers. And then it says in the next verse, verse 6, The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? We have this confidence in Jesus. We need not fear 
what people might do to us. And that was what they were fearing. I might get thrown into prison. I might get beaten. I might get persecuted. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That is the scripture that the preacher highlights for his congregation who have been grasping to the wrong things. Instead of holding on because of fear, let go of the fear and hold on to Jesus. As a matter of fact, as Jesus reaches down to grasp your hand, you have to let go of the money to grab his hand. There's an old Lutheran uh, by the last name of Walter, uh, W-A-L-T-H-E-R, instrumental Lutheran in the formation of the Lutheran Church here in the United States. One of the first um, uh, preachers in the colony of Pennsylvania. And he used to tell his congregation, the last thing in a man to be converted is his pocketbook. (laughs) I always thought that was kind of funny. Then the preacher reminds us that worship and service is also a pastoral issue. Our worship and our service. The first issue that he deals with um, in the church is confusion around God's grace. Some of the church were abandoning grace for the sake of, um, of maintaining food rules, food regulations, and rituals. The preacher addresses this in, uh, earlier in, uh, well, he, he talks about it in verse 9 of our reading for today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food, which don't help those who follow them. In, in chapter 9, he also addressed this in more detail. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. What we think is some may have been returning to the old covenant of sacrifices and the cleansing rituals. But the problem is, you know, if, if worship is only a legal system to get forgiveness for the past day, then I think we're in trouble. Because what we're saying is that we truly haven't been set free. And if we haven't been truly set free, then we have lost faith in the one who has set us free, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. If worship is only a legal system, it's very limited. Um, Martin Luther wrote extensively about this. One of the ideas that that he developed was that there is a system of two uses of the law. You see, we have never abandoned the law. In this whole book of Hebrews, the law has never been abandoned. The sacrificial system was being abandoned, but the law was not. And Luther said that we had two uses of the law. 
One was to provide order for us so that we could live together in harmony and peace. The second use of the law was when God used that law to drive us to death, our spiritual death, so that we had nothing else to hold to other than Jesus. And what we could say was happening in this early church is that they had been brought to faith through this second use of the law, but it was now becoming easier to revert to only using the first use of the law. And when we do that, we don't have room for Christ. The preacher's response is to call the congregation to leave behind the old system, the old covenant, and to turn to the true and everlasting covenant, the sacrifice of Jesus, the great high priest. In verses 10 through 12, he reiterates that. We have an altar from which the priests in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside of the camp. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. You see, Jesus' sacrifice, which, by the way, was made outside the camp, Jesus' sacrifice is the sacrifice that purchased our forgiveness, that entitled us to the gift of eternal life. His sacrifice was made, not that we would encounter it every day, every week. His sacrifice was made once, once, and for all. The second issue that he talks about here in terms of worship is that the church has had an issue with the public side of worship outside of the camp. Some have stopped coming to worship. We learned about that in chapter 10. As a matter of fact, I got a couple of feedbacks <laughs> about that particular sermon. Perhaps with the danger of gathering for worship, they got used to just not attending worship, not coming to worship, just kind of neglecting it because there was danger in attending worship, just like there is a danger in coming to worship today. And so what the preacher is trying to tell his congregation is that even though they have neglected worship, that the call has been to gather for worship. This is not a new issue. I remember early in my ministry when I served in a very large church. I was the pastor for youth and family ministries. There were three of us pastors, and then we had uh, several program directors that worked alongside of us. I mean, it was a church of thousands. And, um, and I remember we had a lot of um, homebound people, people that had been very ill, uh, that could no longer get out. 
they could no longer come to worship. And so we would take turns visiting these people, the pastors would, and taking communion to them. And it was a list of like 75 different families, people that, that we would take communion to. And um, so what I remember <laughs> is that on occasion, I would be in somebody's home bringing them worship, word and sacrament. And then that weekend, Patty and I might have taken the kids to the mall, the shopping mall, and then we'd run into this couple at the shopping mall. And I always thought, well, that was kind of strange that, you know, they couldn't come to church, but they could go to the shopping mall. Judgment, I know. I apologize. But I told you I'm meddling at this point. And, and, and so what creates that desire for us to skip worship? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it happens. And what the preacher is trying to remind them is that it's important for the body to gather together. Yes, others continued to come, but they, some of them were reluctant to go outside of the camp. They would come into the place of worship where it was safe, but they didn't want to go out into the public, into the world where it was not safe. And so they stopped going out. It would be understandable. I mean, these Christians would have suffered abuse and persecution for doing so. And so it was probably easier to define your faith by some food regulations and some proper food rituals. You know, at least we're being good Christians, right? We're following the rules. We're following the law. Our lives are ordered. But to to encounter Christ, you got to go outside the camp. That's where the transformation happens. That's where the second use of the law comes into play. And the preacher responds here by reminding his church, we have this altar. We have, we have this altar. Not this physical altar. We have this spiritual altar that has been created for us, for you and for me, by Jesus Christ, by his going to the cross, his suffering, his dying, his being raised from the dead, being seated at the right hand of God the Father. We have this We have this altar to go to. When we go out inside of the camp, we're not going out unprotected. We have this altar to go out with. And the way to this altar is to follow Jesus, to follow his cross outside of the camp. We as a church today, and this is part of what I have been learning from this book of Hebrews. We, as the church today, we need to learn to go outside the camp. We do not make the same sacrifice that Jesus made for us when we do that. We do not make the same sacrifice. So I want to be clear about that. However, our sacrifices are important. Sacrifices that include worship and praise prayer, 
building relationships with people who do not know Jesus Christ, doing acts of mercy, showing others what we have in Jesus. It means relating to prisoners, to the homeless. It means relating to refugees, to neighbors, to work colleagues. In verses 13 to 16, the preacher highlights this for us. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, referring to Jesus here, and bear the disgrace that he bore. For this world is not our permanent home that we are looking forward. We are looking forward to a home that yet is to come. And when we go out, we do not participate in destructive or violent acts. We do not participate in gossip, in sharing information that we know is possibly not true. When we go out, we do not go out in fear. We are called and set free to go out Inside the camp to go out into the public square with boldness and with courage in the name of Jesus Christ. The preacher then invites us to pray for the leaders and for himself that they may be reunited soon. And that prayer request is followed by the benediction and some announcements. One of the highlights of the announcements for me was hearing that Timothy has been released from prison. That means that he's not going to be executed. It means that he is not under trial anymore. Then we also hear to greet all the leaders and all the believers, to greet even those who did not come to worship to hear the letter being read. And then he sends greetings to all from believers in Italy where he seems to be remaining. So in summation, what we have learned, I believe, is that the future of the church is what this book is about. And the future of the church will be defined by two things. The first is our ability to hold on to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That Christ's redemption is sufficient and that it has set you free. The second is this. We are called to gather and then to go outside the camp with the love of Christ to teach, to do acts of mercy, to show the world who Jesus is by showing the world who we are. I don't know if it was helpful for you, but I think it was very helpful for me, and I believe it will be helpful for this church. 
because we have a clear direction. Come to worship, and then let's go outside the camp together. Amen.